So we're in the book of Luke. Uh, Luke is a third book into the New Testament. The, the Bible's broken up into two main portions, Old Testament before Jesus, New Testament, Jesus and after for about 100 years or so. All right, we're in the New Testament. Luke was a doctor who took great precision to understand who Jesus was, what he did. He visited witnesses. He followed up on facts. He's very specific and thorough in all of the details that he gives. He also writes a book called Acts of the Apostles, which is another book in the New Testament. If you want to geek out on details, read Luke, because he doesn't miss anything. He's very specific in his um, search for who Jesus is so that he can uh, proclaim and display him really well. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be inside of the book of Luke, Luke 7. Andrew read it for us this morning. And it's around a dinner party. Have you ever been invited to a really good dinner party? You've probably been invited to a bad dinner party as well. Uh, but a good dinner party will have at least three things. Food, all right? Hopefully they're providing you dinner. Uh, but even if the food is bad, that's okay. Just don't say anything. Suck it up. Smile, all right? Hopefully the company is good, Right? So you need food, you need company, and the third aspect of a really good dinner party is a host. If you have a very hospitable host, even if they screw up all the food, even if they invited all the idiots that you didn't want to hang out with, at least you get a good host. But there's a fourth part that makes dinner parties excellent, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. This is one of those like weird things, right, where when you drive by an accident, you're like, nope, shouldn't look at the accident, but you do. And you look for details, like what really is going on, and is there anyone, right, like those weird things creep up, or I'm just confessing to you, that's what creeps up, and you might think, but weird, and that's fine, right? But there's a fourth part to dinner parties, and it's when something awkward happens at the dinner party. That's what you talk about. You forget the food, you forget who is there, but when, when drunk Uncle Sam stands up and toasts everyone and shares all these random secrets, like, eyes just go up and you're like, I'm not going to forget this. Or like, kid says, I don't want to eat that. No, you, you eat it or like, I'm going to take away the rest of your life. And they vomit over everything. And you're secretly like, yes, like, this is amazing, right? This is a good dinner party to be at. This is kind of what happens in this story. This is a dinner party, everything is swell, everything is good, hunky-dory, and then it, it goes bad, really bad. So let me get into the story, and we'll go kind of verse by verse through this. So we have Luke, uh, is it up here? This is awesome, this is awesome. So this is why uh, we actually have Bibles uh, right here, or a Bible here. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can grab one on your way out. There's this thing that most of you have, it's called a, a phone. Uh, there's actually an app on here called the YouVersion Bible app, which you could probably uh, chip in a few cents and donate, na donate, not donate, download, other one, uh, Freudian slip. Uh, you can download it now and actually follow along with us as we're going. Uh, so Luke 3, or Luke 7, verse 36. Uh, it's just going to be, we can go back to the mixtape thing if you want, Beth. So Luke uh, 7, verse 36 says this. One of the Pharisees asked him, meaning Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So here's the setting. Here's what's going on. It's a house of a Pharisee. A Pharisee is a religious leader. Okay, big word for religious leader. It was a label. Like everyone would look and say, oh, that's, that's a Pharisee. You kind of lose your name, 
Right? If you've ever uh, been around the city and seen someone with, with a collar, it doesn't matter what comes after the word father. You just say, oh yeah, that's a father or a priest or whatever. This is kind of the way that they viewed a Pharisee. Religious leader, it was a label. It became their identity, who they were. If you said to them, you're no longer a Pharisee, they most likely wouldn't know who they were anymore. They were a people who were pure, at least in their understanding of their way to be pure. And, and they, they did this really nice thing. If you've ever met a religious, okay, that's, oh, nice job, great job, whatever happened, amazing. Uh, yay, Beth. Uh, so what's going, I lost my train of thought, but that's okay. Um, if you've ever been to a house of a religious fundamentalist, uh, things aren't that fun. All right, things are, things are kind of boring, uh, things are very rule-oriented, and you feel a bit judged. Uh, this is kind of the way the Pharisees rolled. Uh, they created boundaries. So they had the, the Bible, or the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, but then what they did was to protect and make sure that they didn't actually, quote-unquote, sin, they created boundaries around that. So when you think of the Pharisees, think of, right, you tell your kids not to put their fingers into electrical outlets, but they try to, so you put little things there so that they can't break through that. You tell them not to jump off buildings, uh, but they'll probably try to, so you put a gate and fence. The, the Pharisees lived that way for everything. They were always putting electrical outlet socket things there, always putting gates and baby gates and places so that people couldn't get close to sinning. This is how they lived their life. So Jesus gets invited to this house to eat. And the house would have been semi-public, so they probably would have been eating out in the courtyard where people could pass by and actually dialogue with the host or the people who were there. Everything was kind of public, and Jesus was invited the meal would have been a, a Greco-Roman symposium where there'd be a meal, a long meal, um, where people laid, I would do it for you, but I just don't feel like it, and you wouldn't see me do it anyway. Uh, they would lay down with their feet out in a semi-recumbent um, manner where they would take the bread, dip it into the main dish, and eat, and then drink the, the wine, okay, as they were eating it. But the meal was really for a long discussion to be had, And this Pharisee was exploring who Jesus really was. Because the Pharisees didn't understand who Jesus was. They didn't know if he was on their team or if they needed to get on his team. And they didn't know if they wanted to be on his team and they didn't know if he wanted to be on their team. And so this Pharisee invites Jesus over to explore who Jesus really is. And you might be here this morning in the same place, exploring who Jesus is. And I would say, welcome. You're so welcome to be with us. You're so welcome to explore who Jesus is. I would say do it openly. Don't do it privately. Grab people afterwards and, and ask them, hey, what did he mean by that? Grab me. Come to one of our Alpha courses. Uh, come have a meal at my house. We want to be talking about this because at one point, all of us in this room were exploring who Jesus is and what he did. So don't feel like a junior varsity or second-class citizen. You're welcome in to our proverbial table this morning. You're welcome in to the discussion that we're having about Jesus. But you have this really nice meal. The Pharisee finally gets Jesus over in this, this town of Nain. And then things go really wrong. This is where the awkward thing happens. And here we have it in verse 37 and 38. And behold, a woman of the city... 
who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. So Emil, beautiful, all of a sudden a prostitute comes in and ruins everything. I mean, this is, this is kind of like, you know, having a birthday celebration with grandma and grandpa and your very messed up friend has like the stripper cake wheeled in. It's like, not a good idea ever, not a good idea with nana and grandpa, okay? Right? The, and, and I'm not over-exaggerating things. This is what's happening. This is what is going on at this meal, She was a problem. Her entrance was a severe problem for two reasons. The first is that she didn't follow the rules of society. She comes in and is wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, and you're like, gross. Okay, it's more than gross. For a woman to let down her hair in public is our version of of a woman taking off her shirt and walking around in public, just going topless. And you're like, Dwight, you're going too far. No, I'm not. All the commentators say that. You do not do this. You definitely don't do it in front of a Pharisee. Or it's Jesus, for goodness sakes. You don't do this in front of Jesus. And the things that she's doing, right? Standing behind him at his feet, weeping and wetting, and began to wet his feet with her tears, wiping them ahead of her, her hair, massaging his feet. She's treating Jesus similarly to how she would treat a client. This is a prostitute. You would think that Jesus would hop up and say, don't, don't you know about my reputation? You can't do this with me. What will people say? What will people think if they knew that you were massaging my feet? I wouldn't have a future if I ever even wanted to be married. She didn't follow the rules of society. But the second thing is that she didn't follow God's rules either. It says she was a sinner a woman of the city who is a sinner. And this wouldn't have just been a label like God looks at her as a sinner. Yes, actually, the Bible says that everyone is a sinner, meaning everyone is at enmity with God, that, that we have things in our heart that will not allow us to be in the presence of him. And you say, well, that's, that's far-fetched, right? Why couldn't I just go and be in the presence of God? Okay, good luck trying to be in the presence of the president, if you want that, of the United States, okay, with a gun. You don't just get to walk up and, and you know, play with your guns and say, hey, I'm here to see the president. You don't get to do that. They restrain you, hold you down. They say, you cannot bring these into his presence, In a similar way, you cannot bring your sin, your rebellion against God into his presence and say, I'm here, love me just as I am, and let me stay just the way I am. God will not allow that, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But she's a sinner. She's a sinner, and not only is she a sinner against God, but she's been labeled a sinner by all of her society. Everyone knew this. In verse 39, it says that when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, okay, internally, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Everyone knew this woman's name. Everyone knew Bobby Joe. Everyone knew Darla. Everyone, whatever her name is. I don't know what her name is, right? Everyone knew this woman. Her identity as sinner in front of everyone had been derived from her reputation. Her reputation. 
she'd become what she had done, right? Isn't that always the case? We often walk around with an identity based on what we've done. Uh, Class reunions, uh, some of you haven't even graduated yet to have a class reunion. Uh, But next year, crazy enough, it'll be 20 years since I graduated high school. And I kind of want to go back to the reunion, but I kind of don't want to as well. Because the type of guy I was in in high school, I wasn't a great guy. And people knew me for certain things that I no longer am. But when I think of people from high school, like in my mind, I don't think that they've changed, right? I think of them back then. They still have that reputation in my mind. And, And in my mind, they continue to be these things. And so it could be easy on that night for us actually to just slump back in to our identity of who we used to be over 20 years ago. And and we're this way in all of life, that we're known for something. Oh, they're the guy that that likes this team, or they're the, the person that cooks this thing the best, or they're the one that always fails, or they're the one that's always fit, or they're the ones that always struggle with weight, or they're the ones that are single, and they're the ones that are divorced, they're the ones that are married, those are the ones who wish they were one of the, like, We always have these labels that people put onto us and we more often put onto ourselves and we hide behind them. Now imagine this woman, she's in this little town called Nain. Jesus comes to visit. Everyone knew her. She was known as the prostitute, slut, whore, right? This is who she was. So every morning when she woke up, put on her clothes, looked in the mirror, I am this person. It's very hard to break in a small town. You don't get, just get to uh, change your identity in a day. I don't want to be that anymore. I'm going to go be this person. Because the town is going to remind you of who you were. This is who you were. You can't get out of that. You'll never be more than a whore. This is who you've always been. So if we put ourselves in this, the place of this woman, what hope did she have? Almost none. She barges into Simon's, or the Pharisee's house, which we'll find out is Simon, right? She, she barges in, and you say, how would she dare to do that? Well, she had nothing to lose. When you have nothing to lose, you'll pretty much do anything to get ahead in life, because at least you get that little bit of pleasure, because you're never going to be like the Pharisee or like the elite in life. This woman's only hope, literally, was the one who was laying down at the table at this Pharisee's house. Her only hope in all of life. Have you ever been there where you have one strand left? Maybe you're there this morning. There's one strand left, and you say, if this doesn't work, I don't see how anything is going to work. If this doesn't change everything, I don't see how there's any hope in going on living. And I think that probably this woman was in a similar place to that. Would she have taken her own life? Probably not. But she would have just sucked it up and and lived under her identity as the town prostitute for the rest of her life. See, she had heard that Jesus came for sinners. She had heard that Jesus came for those who were kept far away from the religious tables. She had heard that Jesus actually partied with the rebels, right? Jesus went in to the drunks, hung out with them. They liked him. 
A Pharisee wouldn't get to walk into the keg party and be the life of the party, but Jesus was. And yet he never became like them. He could go into the most horrific places, horrific scenarios, and not become like them. He could bring something other to the party every time. So she comes in. She's bathing his feet in her tears and weeping and and drying his, his feet with her hair and massaging them. And here's what I think. A lot of the commentators say this as well, that she had a previous experience with Jesus. That Jesus had already engaged with her, not as a client of hers, but her as a client of his. That he came to bring what no one else could bring. See, she brought lust, fulfillment to to the people of that city. Those who wanted to secretly work out some of their desires. But what Jesus brought was, was the deepest longings of people's hearts. To belong to God, to be loved, to be approved because of what Jesus would do. So Jesus is there and what he doesn't say is that I approve of your sin. I approve of your occupation. He doesn't say that. Some people hijack this text to say, look, Jesus approves of prostitution. You're not reading the text if you're seeing that. Never once does Jesus say that. He has to forgive her for things that she has done. He didn't approve of her sin, but what he did was he received her gift. Other people might have looked at what she was doing to his feet and said, ah, this is very sensual, erotic, I see where this is going. But for her, she didn't know probably how to treat a man any differently. Jesus takes this act as worship. Isn't that incredible? She does not have her act together. She does not know how to play religious goody two-shoes. She does not know how to play anything other than who she was, but now she's desperate for Jesus as her rescuer, and she comes in and is cleaning his feet, and he receives that as worship, as an act of worship. This is amazing, because she saw him for who he really is. The Pharisee's sitting there in judgment of her and Jesus, Right? If he knew who she really was, he wouldn't let her do this. If she, being a sinner, you know, enters it, like he's just full of judgment. Don't you hate it when that moves in your heart? When you just look around a room and you're like, ah, I, I bet I can run faster than them. Well, I, at least I'm taller than them. Like, things are bad when you're comparing how tall you are and you're a grown-up. All right? Things are probably not going well in life for you if you're still doing that. But it's so easy for our hearts to condemn other people based on our list of righteousness for that day. And then tomorrow we'll break our own rules and create a new list. But Jesus isn't moving in judgment. He's moving in, in grace. He's moving in gift giving. And look what he does to her. And I think he's probably already done it before this. This wasn't the first time she heard this. I think that Jesus is saying this so that everyone at the table understands, I accept her because of the engagement we've already had. Here it is, uh, Luke 7, verse 48. He said to her, your sins are forgiven, removed, done, paid for, over. Verse 50, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Everyone has faith. We all have faith in something. 
But it's the object of faith that Jesus is talking about. Your faith in me as your only hope has saved you. So go in peace. And that go in peace is not just speaking to her, but to the whole crowd. You need to be in peace with her because I'm at peace with her. You want to understand me? You need to understand that I bring peace and reconciliation to the sinners, to the scumbags of this town. I'm here for them. You've rejected them. You've cast them out. I've said, come on. Come on. I have something for everyone. Every, anyone who is thirsty, come and drink. I will give you eternal life. Anyone who is hungry, come and be satisfied by me. Oh, you can't get the scraps from the Pharisee's house? That's okay. You're invited to the eternal feast that my father is going to give. See, when she comes to Jesus, she doesn't come for him to agree with her way of life. Jesus, would you just agree and affirm me for everything that I am and the way that I think and what I believe? She doesn't come for that at all. She comes to be changed. She comes for a new identity. She comes for a new beginning. And here's the good news for her and the good news for us, that Jesus only comes for whores. He only comes for whores. And the reason I use that word is not to be provocative, but kind of, because often we think that we're better. We think that we've got our act together. We think that, oh, I one day thought and reasoned in my mind that Jesus is this because I'm intellectually superior to other people, and therefore God is so lucky to have me. Er, Wrong. You have pursued everything other than God your whole life. You've pursued self, you've pursued sex, you've pursued lust, you've pursued riches, you've pursued money, you've pursued possessions, you've pursued anything that would fill your little heart with enjoyment. But what happens every time? You grow out of those clothes. You need more money, you need a better house, you need a better spouse, you need more riches, you need, there's always more, we're not content with anything that we can get in this world. We're not. We're just not. And that makes us a spiritual, or makes us commit spiritual adultery, that we are adulterers, that you and I were made for God, and we've given our hearts to anything and anyone who makes us a promise of love. Anyone who makes us a promise that, I oh, you're so beautiful, Oh, you're so handsome. Oh, you're so buff. Oh, you're so wonderful. Oh, whatever. Anyone that makes us a promise, we're like, oh, yes, take me. Take me, anti-wrinkle cream. I'm yours. You know, like anything. And we give ourselves away to that. And we put our hope in those, those things. And they disappoint us. And that makes us whores. And yet Jesus comes for us. People that cannot get their act together. It gives me such encouragement reading the scriptures because I see people who can't get their act together, and that's me. The things I want to do, I can't do, and things I I don't want to do, I do. Paul says that, uh, another writer in the New Testament. That's me. And the good news for us is that Jesus comes for us not when we clean ourselves up, but when we're there, when we're giving ourselves away like a prostitute to something. Jesus says, I'm here for you. Middle of the act, I'm here for you to rescue you. That's what Jesus does. And then Jesus says, the really good news is everything you've just done against against God, I'm gonna take onto myself on the cross. So the cross wasn't Jesus being just a victim. He intentionally came to go to the cross. 
We believe Jesus is God. We believe Jesus came in the form of a man. He lived a perfect life and he went to the cross because of you and because of me. And all of our rebellion was put onto him. So on the cross, Jesus becomes the whore. You think about that, that that's startling. That Jesus becomes this woman and becomes you and me on the cross, all the sin, all time, on him. Why? So that you and I can be brought into the family of God as children of righteousness, children of the Father, forgiven, clean. This is good news for us. It should be good news for us. And Jesus rises from the dead and he offers new. There's a new beginning. You're now a new creation. Don't you want for new beginnings? I hear stories all the time where I'm like, oh, if I could just go back in time, right, and change that, I would love to do that. Or you just get to, I love the first Nintendo, right? That was my gaming system. That's, I haven't moved on from that, okay? And there's a power and there's a reset. And just about when dude's supposed to fall through the hole, because I can't deal with that game over, I push reset. And I'm like, oh, guess I gotta do it again, you know? Can't deal with the failure. I wish I could press reset on so many people's lives that I meet. But Jesus does. He actually says, new creation, and there's no more reset now. Now you will only live forever and and have real life, real value, meaning, and purpose, and you belong to me, and I'm gonna change you to be just like me. So she is no longer seen by Jesus as a sinner. Does she sin? Yes, But is that her identity? No. She is now a daughter of the king. And if you've submitted your life to Jesus, you are no longer a sinner. That is not your primary identity. You sin, yes, but your primary identity as a a son or daughter of the king who came to bring you into his kingdom. Now you're invited to be part of God's family at his table. Man, we don't deserve this. What a beautiful invitation and story that Jesus is giving to us to be involved in. And now the only labels that work are the ones that God gives. Pharisee and whore, those don't stand up. Those aren't eternal labels. We get pressure to live under those those labels. Probably not whore, but under Pharisee. We probably have a Pharisee type label that we feel like we need to keep up. We need to be the rich guy, the macho guy, the, the, the best mom, the best wife, the best, whatever, best single person. Like we, we feel like we need to keep this going. We have things like social media that help us in that endeavor, right? No one lays everything out on Facebook. And if they do, what happens? You unfollow them because you don't want to read all that stuff. You're only interested in people putting their best face and foot forward. So we don't dare to actually live out of our real label and real brokenness. But Jesus wants that. Jesus actually wants the things you'd never post. He says, I want to change this. I want to redeem it. And I want to make you just like me. And I want to give you the better label, the better identity that no one can ever take away. A beloved child of God. But there's cost to this. Probably not for the whore. Right? That would be an easy label to give away. It'd be hard hearing it all the time from people, but it'd be harder to give away the Pharisee label because you've worked so hard. You know, the hardest people to convince they need Jesus are the good, moral, upstanding people who donate to charities, who volunteer, because they say, why would I need Jesus to change anything? I'm already a good person. 
our understanding of good is skewed because we, we look at other people and we say, I'm good compared to their bad. But the one we compare our goodness to is, is Jesus. And I've never heard anyone when I've asked them, oh, so if you take your goodness and you compare it to Jesus, how do you stand? They're like, no, 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 we're not talking about Jesus, right? I'm talking about Joe down the road, right? Like, I see what he does. Like, I'm not like that. But when we compare our goodness to Jesus, no one stands. No one even dares to say, yeah, yeah, I'm just like him. Nobody. Nobody. And he wants to give us a new label. He wants to take away your good, moral, upstanding righteousness that will earn you nothing before God. Nothing. Except, depart from me, I never knew you. But God wants to give you something that you can bring. Now, at the same time, Jesus offers something for the Pharisee. I'll be quick with this because I want to get to the application. Jesus uses a parable. Jesus would often use stories to tell of a deeper meaning. He was masterful at his telling of stories. So as, as Simon, or the Pharisee, is judging this woman and Jesus, look at what Jesus says. Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, well, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. So 500 days wages, the other 50. It's, that's a lot. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Now, what Jesus does is he calls him Simon, right? He calls him Simon. You're not a Pharisee. You're Simon, made in the image of God. What I have to bring is for you, not the Pharisee, you. Get out of your label. Let me minister to the person, not the label of who you think you are. But he thinks that he's a man of God. The Pharisees thought, I am a man of God. I'm showing and displaying what it means to be a follower of God. And look at what Jesus does. He flips the table on him without flipping the table. He does that in another place. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he is forgiven little, loves little. Now, now don't read that. I want to be quick to say this. Don't read that as Jesus saying, if you just would have been hospitable to me, uh, I would have forgiven you. That's not what he's saying. He's also not saying, because she did all that funky stuff to my feet, I forgive her. It's not that. It's what Jesus said after this, which we already looked at. Your faith has saved you. By looking at me and asking me to be your rescuer, that has saved you. But what Jesus is doing with, with Simon here is he's showing. You think you're a man of God, but you're so far from it. How can I tell that? By your actions. Simon probably felt hospitable. I invited Jesus into my house. But he's the farthest thing from being hospitable. He didn't perform the minimal hospitality. People come in with like cow poop. I'm thinking the right word to say. Cow poop on their feet. They come in with all kinds of nasty gunk in their toenails. And someone has to wash their feet. 
Jesus doesn't judge him and say, wow, you didn't culturally do the things you're supposed to do. He just comes in and eats. But then he calls him out later on it when this guy's trying to call out this woman. This guy sat in judgment of of everyone. This was a so-called man of God being caught. He was caught being inhospitable to God. Man of God being inhospitable to God. And what does Jesus do? He offers him the same thing that he offered to the woman. Simon, I'm here for you. I'm here to be hospitable to you. I'm here to offer you new life. I'm here to offer you a way to see all of life differently. And Jesus wanted to let Simon know that the woman didn't ruin the party. She shows what worship through hospitality actually looks like. Like, who in this room, like, if I asked you to wash my feet, okay, some of you would be weird, probably all of you would be weirded out. I'd be weirded out if I asked you to wash my feet. But I've been wearing socks and shoes. This is a fairly clean thing that you would be doing. And, and probably all of you would have an issue with it. This woman comes in and she gets her hair all up in the nastiest of places in Jesus' feet because she was worshiping him. Dirty feet, like lost all their meaning because her eyes and focus was on Jesus. And what happened was Simon was supposed to be hosting the party. She became the host. She becomes the hospitable host of this party. And here's the thing about hospitality. Hospitality isn't limited to your house or your space. Hospitality is something that moves all the time that we, as the people of God, we bring God's welcome and care wherever we go. Hospitality is bringing the goods of God to others for their benefit. Often it's done in our home, but this isn't the woman's home. She made this her home because Jesus was there and any place Jesus was, was her home. Her home was in him. Jesus actually said that. Abide in me. Make your home in me. So hospitality. This is where we're going to apply all of of this stuff. Hospitality. We are now temples of hospitality that move around ministering and giving the hospitality of God to others wherever we go and with whomever we meet. So a few questions, and then we'll be done. Why is hospitality so important? We see Jesus' hospitality in welcoming the woman into his family. We see the woman being hospitable in Simon's house. We see false hospitality. If you work in a service industry, you're going to struggle with this, right? Because we're supposed to be hospitable everywhere we go. But are you being hospitable so that you get a better tip? Or are you being hospitable because... God's spirit is moving in you to be the goodness of God to everyone you encounter, whether they tip you well or not. Service industries would be really, really hard. So why is hospitality so important? Three things to say. One, God is made famous through radically ordinary hospitality. I want you to hear this. God is made famous through radically ordinary hospitality. Uh, There are two books that that I think everyone should, should have. These quotes are gonna come from these books. One is called The Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester. Another is called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in a Post-Christian World. Long title. Uh, both books really helpful and have helped me think through this a lot and are very challenging to me. But listen to what Rosario Butterfield uh, says. 
She says, radically ordinary hospitality is this. Using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. It brings glory to God, serves others, and lives out the gospel. The gospel being the good news of Jesus that we've talked about. Lives out the gospel in word and deed. If you are prohibited from using your living space in this way, it counts if you support in some way some household in your church that is doing it. The purpose of radically ordinary hospitality is to build, focus, deepen, and strengthen the family of God, pointing others to the Bible-believing local church and being earthly and spiritually good to everyone that we know. This, this is the daily reality. As Church 21, we want for this to be a daily reality. We don't have a lot of programs. We don't have a lot of events within our church because we actually believe that it's possible to live all of our world in a little Christian bubble, that we never really engage with people that don't yet believe in Jesus or who are antagonistic to Jesus and we just want to coddle one another by coming together. That's, that's not what I see reading, reading scripture. It's that actually we're supposed to be the most hospitable people to our enemies. And it doesn't mean to show them up and be like, well, at least I'm hospitable to them. They're not hospitable to me. But this is just who we are now. This is who we are And so some of the things that you'll hear if you're part of this church often is that we invite people to eat with one another. We say you eat about 21 meals a week. Try and eat two meals with other people, right? Don't add things onto your already busy life. Just enter into the normal things you're already doing and do them intentionally with other people. You might say, I don't know how to live on the mission of God. Well, just eat with people. Ask them questions about who they are and what's going on in their life and you know, what their hopes are and dreams and you know, what, they, what it was like growing up in this place. People just want to share who they are. And they actually want to know what you have to say and what you think. This is a daily reality. We're hospitable people by celebrating with other people. We want to bless people. This should be a normal thing. Uh, last night we had a few people over. Uh, nothing special, coffee and uh, dessert for me. Some of the people wouldn't eat my dessert, Brian Alton. Uh, I brought popsicles. They didn't want popsicles, so I had to eat the, the popsicles. But as we're talking, a need came up. And it's just like, oh, can we meet that need? It's like, uh, reschedule some things. Yes, boom. This day people are going here. It's like, this is just like normal. How do we bless people so that they're taken care of in the family of God? And so that when people find out, like, how did you bring this many people in? Oh, they're connected, you know, through my family within the church. It's like, oh, okay, didn't know. I thought the church was like this thing you gave money to and stayed away from, except marriages and funerals and whatever. So you're constantly redefining what the church actually is through hospitality. So why is hospitality so important? First, God is made famous through radically ordinary hospitality. Don't think hospitality is big dinner parties. Hospitality is like, oh, okay, they're coming over. Throw five extra burgers on the grill. I would say just have extra food in your home. Do not try and impress people. Do not try and impress them. Love them, care for them, and just have extra food if you can. Or go borrow from other people. I don't know, why not? We'll give you food. If you, if you want to throw a party and you don't have food, come. We'll give you whatever freezer-burned vegetables we have left. Uh, second point uh, is this. Um, why is hospitality so important? It shows what Christianity looks like in action. Christianity, we say we love people, but then we have idiots. Can I say that? I think I can. Idiots asking for $54 million for a plane because God wants that for them. 
I wish someone had popped their bubbles more often when they were a kid growing up. Like they needed to be thrown down in the playground a little bit more because that's not what God says, right? Hospitality shows what Christianity looks like in action, that we invite people in to our stuff, not when they finally get their act together. You don't ask questions about sexuality. You don't ask questions about gender. You don't ask socioeconomic questions like, you need food, I need food, uh, my wife can cook, I can grill. Are you available to eat? I don't know if I'm eating this week. That's weird. When you get to it next week, come on over, right? You don't need to bring anything to the table. We've got it taken care of. Right? It shows people what normal Christianity looks like in action. We have something coming up this fall called Friends for Dinner. Foreign exchange students coming from all around the world who often never set foot inside of a Canadian household. So what we're going to do is we're going to say, hey, why don't you all stay here for Thanksgiving? Why don't you invite your family to your place for Thanksgiving and also open it up for one of these foreign exchange students to be able to come in and see what a Canadian Thanksgiving is like, but also what the gospel is like. If, I think three or four years ago, we had some people that came into to ours and they became followers of Jesus. And it's like just because we had a meal together, they built relationship with some people in our group and they began pursuing Jesus and they became a follower of him. Normal, ordinary things God loves to use. When the people of God show and tell who he is, he's so happy to to unveil their eyes to the reality of him. And thirdly, uh, hospitality is so important because it's a picture of, oh, I didn't read the quote there, huh? Uh, Here we go. The purpose of radically ordinary hospitality is to build, I already read that. Here's another one. Uh, Just, You know what? Just read the book. I'm going to skip over this quote. Third one, uh, it is a picture of the curse one day removed. It's a picture of sin removed. Uh, Here's a quote by Tim Chester. During meals, the marginalized lose their marginalness because they are accepted around the table. The lonely cease to be lonely. The alien ceases to be alien. Strangers become Friends, One of my favorite uh, times being here in Montreal is we had a city group and we were living in St. Henry, um, living there and made friends with this group of, of homeless men and, uh, and we had a birthday party for one of the homeless men. We had it as a brunch and, um, and he said, could I bring all of my friends? And he said, yeah, as long as we can bring all of our friends. And we had this, this meal together and it was, it was extremely awkward. Okay, it was extremely strange in many ways. But on the other hand, that's what makes a good dinner party, right? The awkward things make the good dinner party. So we had this beautiful time of, of kids and homeless and non-homeless all being neighbors together where there was no marginalness happening at all. There was love moving from one group to another, to the other, to the other. There wasn't one-way love moving. This is what happens when the church is the church. The lonely ceases to be lonely. The marginalized loses its marginalness and belongs. And that's where I would say if you you feel like an outcast, if you feel like no one could ever love you and yet you don't yet believe in these things I'm talking about, please stick around. I will promise you two things. Um, We will imperfectly care for you, okay? You will probably be able to say, man, you know, you, you preach this, yet someone in the church does this. Mm-hmm, yeah. Because we're not all Jesus yet. You are not going to get perfect people here. But the other side of that, I promise you that 
they're trying to engage with you the best that they possibly can at this moment. So you will be imperfectly pursued and yet loved. And that's what we want to be as a church, pursuing in these two ways. And uh, one more question. What stops us from being hospitable? What stops us from being hospitable in these ways? Uh, Number one is fear. You fear that you're going to get hurt by these people. That's a real fear because you probably will get hurt. You will get hurt if you're going to be hospitable and invite people in. Uh, we're, we're leaving our place. Uh, we built a relationship uh, with a person. Things went really, really well. Uh, she had a brain tumor in her brain, obviously. Uh, we prayed that that would go away. It receded, like was shriveling up. Like we saw healing. We saw her acknowledge who Jesus is and, and want to become a follower of him. And, uh, and a few weeks ago, she just decided that she wanted nothing to do with us anymore. That sucks. So we have a few different options. One, we could say, well, we're never going to be hospitable to people again because that hurts. She hurt us. Or we say, well, Jesus, I was an enemy of you. You came after me. So I'm going to pray that before we move, uh, we can reconcile with her. And, and if not, okay, we're going to keep being hospitable to people because We want people ultimately not to affirm us or be in our home. We want them to be around the table of God for all of eternity. If you fear people's judgment, you won't have them in your house. Ah, my house isn't set up well enough. It's not clean enough. Get over it. No one even cares. You're offering food. You invite a university student and they won't see anything except that food. They will think it's hovering. They won't even see the table there. They will think miracles are happening in your house because you're giving them ramen with an egg. They're like, I didn't know you could mix eggs and ramens. I've never afforded eggs before. Like, it, crazy things happen. You're not being judged. You're not. You think this way, but you're not. You might fear your stuff being ruined. It will be. Get over it. It's not your stuff. Okay? Just don't buy really nice stuff or like put it away or whatever. Don't be surprised when things get broken. If you want us to to help you in that, we'll send our four kids over your house and we'll see how childproof it really is. Uh, We have no insurance policy for that, but we'll take the free babysitting. Um, This woman's eyes were on Jesus. She felt no fear of the judgment that the Pharisee was bringing, she didn't care. Her eyes were locked on him. As you're hospitable, lock your eyes on him. Everything else melts away. What stops us from being hospitable? Objections. I don't have enough time. Come on. You make time to binge your stupid Netflix show. We all have time. You have time to put on your second face. or what, Like, you have time, right? You have time to do things. Be proactive in this. Don't, don't come at me like a victim. I have no time to be hospitable. It's not about having it in your home. It's about being hospitable wherever you go. Make a schedule. There's a Google calendar. There's an eye calendar. There's like hard copy calendar with kittens loving other kittens or something. Like there's all kinds of calendars out there. Buy one. Invest in one. You could download one off this thing called the internet. And like print it. There are printers and like crazy things. Get a calendar. Write it down. Make space for this. Your objection, I don't have enough money. Be creative with this. I know people who are using optimum points. They say, like, we're going to get optimum points on everything, uh, and we're going to use our optimum points to, to throw a bash every so often so that we can have, be hospitable. They don't have the money for it, but they have the optimum points for it. Begin to leverage some of these stupid point system things for the kingdom of God. 
right? Be creative. Literally, like ask people, hey, I want to have a party. I can't afford a party. Could you help me? Could you help me have a party? People in this church would love to contribute to that. They're not in a place maybe where they can have a party at their house, but would love to help you do that well, right? Be creative. Ask other people. Space, I don't have the space. Use other people's spaces. I'm just giving you permission to use other people's spaces in the church. Not mine, but other people's spaces, okay? Because we have stuff that you could break and we don't want you to come in. No, just joking. But hospitality is a thing for us to do together. It's a thing for us to do together. If people just see you in your life, they'll say, oh, that's a nice person, just like that person is a nice person. But when they see the family of God being the family of God together, they'll say, I've never seen anything like this. This is, this is alien-like, and that's what it's meant to be. You might need to borrow, but we need to do this together. Because what happens is when we open our doors and our hearts, it's us opening up the kingdom of God for people to belong. Rosaria Butterfield, um, you, you could read more about her story, uh, but she was uh, a leading person in the LGBTQ uh, community, uh, one of the leading authors, um, feminism at Syracuse University, uh, really a leading thinker in the nation. And, uh, and she had this radical conversion to following Jesus. And it was around a table. And this is why she's so adamant about people being around the table with other followers of Jesus exploring who she is. I would encourage you to read more about her story. So lastly, we say, how do we do this? How do we be hospitable like this? It, this is gonna sound simple, because it is simple, but simple isn't always easy, right? So the first thing is we, we pray. Before going on vacation, uh, my prayer life was almost non-existent in that I, I felt like I was only reacting to things. Someone would come to me and say, oh, would you pray for this? Oh, yes, I'll pray. Uh, I would pray briefly for the church, pray briefly for leaders. But like I felt like I was in doing mode. And one of the things that the Lord taught me on vacation away was you need to be walking with me every morning. And so since coming back from vacation, uh, it's been every morning getting up early. You don't have to do this. Don't emulate this. What does the Lord want for you to do? You get up early every morning. I take a walk, you know, a two-mile walk, and I'm just talking about things. And I'm, I'm asking God, would you show me who you want me to be hospitable today? How? Would you give me the desire, the love for this? Would you help me be hospitable to my family? Help me love my wife as you, Christ, love the church? Would you help me love my kids and not be angry with them? Would you help me love the, the church and shepherd them as you want for them? Like, like, my heart's been hijacked over vacation, and, and now I can't get you people off of my heart, right? And I can't get my neighbors off of my heart, and I believe that's only the Lord doing that because it wasn't me just a few months ago. So pray. Lord, would you, would you line up things for me to be hospitable to people? And in prayer, you become close with the one who is hospitable, who has a heart for all your neighbors, friends, coworkers, family, right? And you get to, to, to have his heart for them. Third, create boundaries, right? Don't leave here being like, I'm gonna have everyone over my house for all 21 meals. Like, forget the two out of 21. Create boundaries, because you will burn out. If you're married, make sure that your spouse is on board with your hospitality schedule. Make sure that your budgets are lining up uh, with one another. Make sure all of this is, is together, right? If you're, if you're married. If you're single, um, just talk to yourself, like work it out and figure it out. Uh, create boundaries for yourself, okay? Be, be good in that. Um, but I remember being single 
And man, I would have, I live with my grandparents, confession, right? I, crazy story, but had to move back in with my grandparents. And I would say to my nana and grandpa all the time, like, hey, I'm having 10 people overnight. They're like, okay, like, that's great, you know? And like, and so since my nana couldn't really cook, so I'm like, so uh, we're gonna have to order out food. Could, I don't have any money. Could you pay for that? They're like, yes, we wanna be hospitable. Okay, great, right? So the key to all this is moving with your grandparents, get them to pay for all your hospitality. Uh, and my story ended up with getting married. So um, I don't know. Anyway, uh, I don't know where I was going with that. Uh, schedule, <laughs> schedule. My wife loves me uh, despite my dark past, uh, right? Schedule things out. Schedule when you're going to have people over. So pray close to the hospital one. Have boundaries so you don't get burned out. Schedule when you're going to have people over and invite them. Invite them. Text them. Ask them. And be okay with people saying no. Here's one of the things we say all the time is we're going to invite people into things we're already doing. And if people say no, that doesn't matter because we're already going to do them. Hey, we're going to the park. Does anyone want to come? No. Great, have a good time. We're going anyway. Hey, you want to come over for supper? No. Oh, what are we going to do? They're not coming. I guess we're not eating. Of course we're going to eat, right? Oh, we're going to have a party. If no one comes to my party, that's more stuff for me. Don't ever feel bad saying no. I will eat more chicken wings. Like I, like, I just get more, right? I want you there, but like, do things you're already going to do and just invite people into those things. And then trust. Trust that Jesus can use these normal, ordinary things to unveil and unlock people's hearts to understand who he really is. So we're gonna respond. We're gonna respond this morning to this call to hospitality. I, I, I want for us to enjoy this God of hospitality now. Enjoy that he has invited you into his presence now and into his family now. I want you to be thinking as we're singing, as we're responding what could I do differently this week? How could I plan this week out differently so that people could be involved? We get to respond immediately after. Actually, we're doing this new thing called, uh, it's very creatively named, all right? You're gonna love it. It's called Lunch Downstairs, okay? So if you can't figure it out, I'm gonna explain it this one time, okay? And then never to be explained again. We're gonna eat lunch together downstairs, all right? After this, all right? So if you're new, if you've been here for a while, whatever, we're going to go downstairs. A few people will be down there. They're going to reserve some tables because no one told us we could never do it. I love asking for forgiveness and just doing things, right? So we're going to reserve some tables. And this is going to be a new thing we do every single week, that you can eat lunch downstairs every week. And if no one shows up, you're still going to eat lunch. And if people show up, you're going to eat it with other people. But there'll always be one pastor, one city group leader, and I forget what other category of person, one other labeled person we're going to send down there, right, uh, to be with you, to, to enjoy. And you can ask questions of them, uh, and that would be great. And, uh, and we want to respond. Uh, I'll ask you to stand. Go ahead and stand. Um, Sorry, uh, everyone's kept their time all summer long. I come back and I preach over time, whatever. Doesn't matter. Uh, and, um, and so um, here's the deal. God has invited you into his family, uh, into his, be part of his people. He's calling you to respond this morning by coming to his table right there. That's his table. 
where we're reminded of his body being broken, which is the bread for us, his, his blood being shed, which is the, the wine, the juice being shed for us. There's a box there where you can give because as a church, we wanna be hospitable all over the world. We wanna see more people meet Jesus here in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and globally. And so a lot of our gifts go outward outside of this church. So you be generous because God has already given you everything. And we're gonna sing. All right, so we're going to sing and we're going to declare uh, with melody uh, the greatness of our God. And I invite you to sing out because this isn't for the, the judgment or the approval of anyone in this room. Your singing, your songs are to God in worship of him. So I'm going to pray and then, uh, and then I'll get out of the way here. Uh, Lord, thank you that you are a great God. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're for us. You're not against us. Thank you that everything that you uh, say over us as your kids is they're beloved, they're mine. Thank you that, that we can claim that this morning because of the work that you have done. Jesus, we need you to even help respond to you. Um, help us to be hospitable. Help us to lose our stinginess, our greediness, our meanness, uh, our selfishness. Um, and help us to, to be all about you. We really want for this city and this province to, to have a great awakening, to have a great revival. And I believe that it'll happen through your people being hospitable in the nooks and crannies of all of life. So we love you and we need you for everything. Amen.